Hey everybody, welcome back to Simply Holy Living, a practical guide for living the open-handed life every day. And welcome back to The Gift of Disruption, the series specifically designed to help us emerge from the season stronger than we started. And uh, we are actually in our third lesson today. We started with just embracing the season. Remembering that God has allowed this time for us and he has lessons embedded in it for us to learn. And then last time we talked about just noticing what has been exposed in us during this time. You remember the quote was, we may not all be exposed to the virus, but the virus has exposed us all. It's so true. So we're going to try to carry on in our journey. This lesson right here is actually going to be a two-parter. So, you know, when anything is exposed in us, it can be embarrassing. Even that word, I love the word because it reminds me of, you know, like the triple X kind of thing, exposed. Um, You know, you feel sort of bare, you feel embarrassed. Maybe you are seeing things for the first time that maybe your spouse has been trying to say or people around you have been saying, or maybe you're finally having to take, you know, responsibility for something you realize you've been making excuses for. It's a peekaboo moment, you know. Um, It just can be embarrassing. And, you know, our society is very, very, very good at not taking responsibility for anything. (laughs) And I know that each of us has been guilty of that um, to varying degrees. I know I am. So, you know, there are different responses to this sort of uncomfortable, exposed feeling. And I sort of narrowed it down to three that I see around me and in myself. I've done all of these myself. But I think the first one is just the classic denial. You know, like, no, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. You know, you can picture the stereotypical alcoholic situation. You know, I I can quit any time. I don't have a problem. I've quit a hundred (laughs) times. But we are like that with various things, not just alcohol. You know, it could be more like, you know, people are being, you're just being too sensitive or, you know, you're, you're being legalistic and, you know, it's not that bad. It's not all that bad. I mean, I can't be perfect. You're just, you're judgmental. You're critical. You're judging me. You know, we can do this sort of like, you know, this is not really happening and, and, and enter into a time of denial. And you know it can be bad. You've seen it. And maybe it's been in you at a very bad level. I know it has been in me. Um, I think another way that we can respond is through projection. You know, something comes to our attention, but we don't want to take responsibility. So it is, well, it's our spouse's fault or it's our boss or it's our parents or it's the economy or my kids or the pandemic or the government or whatever it is. It's always something outside of ourselves. You know, I always when this one, I always remember in the Lord of the Rings when um, when Gandalf goes to Bilbo and he's talking to Bilbo about it, he starts to notice Bilbo, I think that ring is getting a hold of you. I think you've had that ring long enough. I think it's it's not being good for you. And Bilbo gets so mad and he goes, well, if it's not, it's your fault. You know, <laughs> I love that line because it's just so clear. I could see myself in it. You know, that's that feeling that there's a problem. You know, you figure out there's a problem. There's something wrong here. You know, who, who can I blame? You know, <laughs> someone's to blame around here. And it's usually the people that are close to you because they're just the easiest to blame. So there's that projection or the deflection, getting it off of you. Or perhaps it's depression, you know, where it's like, you know, I can never do anything right. I've done, you know, what's the use? I always fail. I've tried everything, you know, and just that uh, get going down and down and down and down and down. You know, and sometimes we can think that, you know, this is sort of good, 
because we're we're looking in but it's not the right kind of looking in it's still not even taking responsibility because it is we are a victim really of our own selves we are still in that victim mentality all of these are a victim mentality all of them are to some degree in various forms a form of self-pity or worldly sorrow i know you've heard of that um you know i i think that during this time whatever has been exposed in you the best road for you honestly is just to own it <laughs> you just gotta own it and that's why i said you need to say it out loud because it's just better listen to your own dialogue what has been going on what has been the reasons that you've used what are the excuses that you you realize you can't even use anymore you know listen to your dialogue and this is really where i it set in for me is, um, you know, I realized as I was praying, you know, Jay and I were out on a prayer walk and I realized I'm praying the same things. I thought, because we, we were praying and I said, I was talking about fitting everything in or show me how to fit everything in. It was, a, you know, a scheduling thing. And I was like, are you kidding me that I am praying the same prayer? Every single thing in my life is different and I am still praying the same prayer. <laughs> oh my gosh me you know just finally had to just own it but it feel actually felt really refreshing just to own it um you know i noticed this with my daughter too because this year um for those of you who know me you know that we've homeschooled for many many years and this year we kind of did something different and my youngest daughter went to a charter school very close to our house that that meets um you know that meets sort of more traditionally and uh so her environment is different but you know it's so funny she's exactly the same <laughs> she was there and now she's here and she's exactly the same and it reminded me of when i was it and when i was in um, college uh i when i was at usc actually when i was um doing my graduate work they uh you know usc is kind of rich i don't know if you know that and at at that particular school there were a couple of strats that means there were a couple of stradivarius violins you know worth millions and um, that's kind of a big deal. Well, you know, from time to time, you would have a studio, a teacher, bring in a Strad for everybody to play on so that you would have a chance to play on this incredible instrument that was, you know, no one can explain why it's so great. It was cut out in, you know, the 1600s and it just is different than any other instrument. So, um, and it really is true. It really is amazing. So anyway, the whole studio, all the students would get a chance to play on this violin. But you know, the thing that we noticed is that everybody still sounds like who they are it's it doesn't automatically make you a better player it's just you sound the way that you sound you still have to shift to the right note you still have to have a good vibrato you still have to play in tune you still have to do all that stuff yeah it's a better instrument but you're still who you are you're still the player that you are you know and i always remembered that um, that, you know, you can only put so much stock in the environment or your tools, you know, you have to really just own who you are. So, and in that light, I wanted to, t I wanted to read a very familiar scripture to all of you. And it is the, it's the scripture from 2 Corinthians 7, talking about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And I know you've heard it a lot. So I want to read it in the message just so it can it can jar our I don't know our senses. You know, sometimes when you read something in a different translation in a different way, it just brings out different thoughts that you hadn't thought before. 
He says, um, I know I distressed you greatly with my letter. This is Paul talking to the, the church at Corinth because he had sent them a pretty salty letter. He had been correcting them and rebuking them quite a bit. And he says, I know I distressed you with my letter. Although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel at all bad now that I see how it has turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. Now I'm glad. Not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets. They end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive, you're more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote that letter. You know, I just needed to, I just love, I love the scripture, period. But I loved hearing it in a different way, just talking about how you feel so alive. And I love that word, said how, how sensitive you are. Because I've noticed that when I can just go ahead and own it, <laughs> and own what is wrong with me it just it there's so much refreshment that comes you know it does say in acts that repentance brings refreshment and you know it's great just to bag the excuses and just to own it and get to enjoy that feeling of refreshment i always feel tender-hearted I feel way more compassion for other people because I'm, you know, when you're being, when you're not um, accepting your own self, it's hard to accept other people. When you're being hard on yourself, actually, you start to be hard on other people. But when you are admitting who you are, when you can be gentle with yourself and just go, it's the truth, this is who I am. You know, you just have so much more compassion for everybody else and your heart softens. There's nothing worse than a hard heart, in my opinion. I hate that feeling. I hate the feeling of bitterness. I hate the feeling of resentment. I hate the feeling of jealousy. I hate it. And I would just rather do anything than um, be stuck with that feeling. So we're gonna break this down. It's gonna take two times, actually. So I, I think I mentioned it's gonna be a two-parter. So I wanna talk about something that everybody is familiar with. That's the 12 steps. Okay, so the 12 steps it, for AA, or any anonymous groups, you know, they're, they were, they're really so good. I mean, they, I'm going to boil them down here really to about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boil them down to about six steps. But I know that you can follow along, even if you haven't really been in recovery. You've probably been around people in recovery. So number one, you got to admit that you're powerless. Number two, you got to admit that you need God. Three, you have to examine and confess um, after that, you make amends. After that, you learn new ways. And after that, you help other people that are struggling with the same thing. You know, it is exactly the plan for repentance. The thing is that too many people think about this 
as if it's only for over drinking or the other anonymous things, the, of course, overeating or taking drugs or whatever. But the truth is we need that exact thing for anything we're facing, for facing gossiping or complaining or pride or or control of other people or pouting or yelling or cussing or cheating or lying or stealing or yelling or hoarding or cutting. Even some of these other things that are just behaviors that come when we cannot, when we are powerless and we are powerless over pretty much every, that's the best thing you can do is admit that you're powerless. One of the worst places to live is in your own strength, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, it just tires you out. You know, when you can finally admit, okay, I got a problem. I am powerless over this. And you're not in denial anymore. And you're not blaming anybody else. And you're going, it's nobody's fault but mine. I mean, honestly, when you are getting to that point, when you finally get to that point, I mean, you're doing your first John 1, 5 through 9, which says that if we claim to be without sin, we make him out to be a liar. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you know, we've already hopefully done these first three, admitted that we're powerless, admitted that we need God. We've already done the examining and the confessing, of course, from last week. You know, and I just want to talk a little bit about how it feels when you get off of your own strength and you get on to God's strength. You know, here's some scriptures that really, it, I think just reading a bunch of these always helps. But, you know, in, in Colossians 1, it says, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Ephesians 3 says, Out of his glorious riches, he will strengthen you. And of course, the famous Philippians 4, I could do all things through Christ, who gives me strength. 1 Thessalonians 3 says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, The Lord is faithful and will strengthen you. 2 Timothy, The Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. And I think that I just want to make sure that as we go into this on this road of repentance, because it is a road, there is a plan, you know, and we'll talk more about that. But you have to start with the right energy. Give up on your willpower. I just want to I just want to beg you to give up on your own strength. You know, God's grace is sufficient. You know, your power, his power is made perfect in weakness is what he says. And the longer we go on our own energy, the worse it's going to be. You're going to be tired. You're going to be worn out. You're going to be bitter. You're going to be resentful. And everything's going to feel like a burden. It is not the way of Jesus Christ who says, my burden is light, right? My burden is light. You know, I was reminded of the two concepts. I know a lot of you are doing Bema. And two concepts that have been helping me so much. And one is this. You know, sometimes when you're trying to fight something in your life that is just bugging you. You know, maybe you're a yeller and you just you just can't seem to stop yelling. Um, maybe you are um, you're giving in to overeating or whatever. You know, some of the things that I talk about. But maybe you're just a complainer or maybe you're unhappy in your marriage. And maybe you can't figure out why you're 
So, uh, you know, always thinking of the downside, the depression side, whatever. You know, when we are going up against things that are strongholds inside of our heart, you have to think about how deep you have to dig in to, to, to make a stronghold. Um, it can be kind of depressing at times because you can feel like I just keep doing the same things over and over and over and over. But you know, I was reminded by listening to Bema, he was talking about the time of the judges in the Old Testament. And anybody who has studied the Bible for any period of time, if you've gone through the time of the judges, you know that there is this cycle that the Israelites would go through. At first, it starts off with them trusting God and believing in God and in following his ways. But then over time, they would just, you know, sort of forget about, you know, they would start to get involved in the stuff that's going on around them. They would start thinking about the other gods that are the other people, and they would start to do and stop listening to God and start doing things their own way. And pretty soon, they're not doing any of the things that God said to do. They're not taking care of the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, any of that. They're not taking care of the poor. They're not doing any of God's things. And they start to sort of worship themselves, money, power, whatever, the idols of the time. And so they would, of course, the, some catastrophe would happen. Their consequences would catch up with them. A, a, a neighboring tribe would come and take them over. Or they would be, you know, put into slavery or whatever. And they would have to cry out to God because their the circumstances of their life were getting horrible. They're paying for consequences. Everything was unmanageable. So they would cry out to God. And so then God would come in and rescue them. He would send them a judge and, they, and the judge would lead them back to God. They would start trusting in God and God would save them again. And then that would go and they would follow God for a little while and then they would fall off and the whole cycle would go again. And typically we call that the cycle of the judges, but really it's really a cycle of sin. That's what, you know, you think about the cycle of sin. But I love the way Marty said, why do we have to call it a cycle of sin? Why can't it be the cycle of redemption? Why can't it be this cycle of like, yeah, and then you get to, and then he redeems you again. And then you're like, yeah, 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 you try to fall off, you fall off, but then he redeems you again. You know, and that little thing for me was just like, that's what it is. I look at the negative. I look at the cycle of sin. Why can't I just think the cycle of redemption? Can you believe God's faithfulness? Can you believe that he would rescue me once again? Can you believe that he would save me one more time? Can you believe that he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve? Can you believe that he's patient? You know, he's always patient with us when we are trying to obey. You know, it's always been a hard thing for me. I've always thought that God is going to run out of patience. He's going to run out of patience like me. I probably put kind of project that onto him that he's going to be like me, but he's not like me. You know, he's not going to run out of patience. He is patient with as long as we're trying. He is going to be patient. It's a cycle of redemption. We keep going back to him. He keeps redeeming us and redeeming us and redeeming us and redeeming us. And yeah, it may be three steps forward and two steps back. It may be, but we keep going forward. We keep going forward. You know, that's the way it is with our kids. We know it. You know, they're going to make progress and then they're going to regress. And then they're going to make progress and then they're going to regress. You know, actually, that's pretty normal. And we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient with our kids. You know, all those things that we feel like we've told them a hundred times. I'll go, you know, a hundred times. When you get out of the shower, the, the towel goes back up on the rack. 
not on the floor, on the rack. Or when you get something out of the refrigerator, you have to put it back in the refrigerator. Or when you get out chips, you got to roll the bag up and put the clip back on. You know, all of those things. Do you feel like you've said a hundred times? You know, we need to be patient with those things. We need to be as patient with our kids as we want God to be patient with us. I mean, how many things does he have to tell us a hundred times? Especially how many times does he have to tell us that he loves us? That's what we need to hear a hundred times. We need to hear it a thousand times. I love you no matter how many stupid things you do. I love you no matter how many mistakes you make and how many times you have to get back up and try it again. I love you. You know, that's what we need to hear. We need to focus on the cycle of redemption. Just transform that in your mind from the cycle of sin to the cycle of redemption. And the other thing that has really been hitting me is um, now I'm in the time of the prophets. And um, Marty talks about that scripture that is in Joel that says, rend your hearts, not your garments. And it's talking about that thing that they used to do, and I think they still do in this um, culture, where when some tragedy strikes, they you know tear their clothes. And um, he was telling a story about one of his friends who had who experienced this when they had to go tell a wife that her husband had died and that in that situation the son actually had torn his robe or torn his garments and he said I'll never forget the sound of that ripping you know and I he made this point that when Jesus died on the cross when he finally died that the veil in the temple was torn in two and that people think that that was God rim, you know, ripping his garment, tearing his garment. It was his heart breaking. And if you think about him tearing that garment, how loud it must have been, the sound of that. Because it was inches thick. And just thinking about that was God's heart being broken. And this is a concept that I think of a lot as I'm trying to repent, is I think about how I'm breaking God's heart, how it breaks God's heart when we start to put those, you know, those stones back up in that wall of sin that divides us from Him, when we start to, you know, our heart gets hard again and we start to be distant from Him, how His heart breaks. You know, I look at this time and wouldn't you just love it if the whole world was just realizing they're breaking God's heart, that they were just falling on their knees saying, God, forgive us for what we've been doing. Don't you wish the whole world was falling down in repentance and just and just saying, God, teach us how to be different. God, forgive us for looking out for ourselves, for being greedy, for fighting with each other, for, for worrying about the wrong things. Teach us how to seek you first. Teach us how to seek your kingdom over our own kingdoms, how to seek your righteousness out of our own, over our own personal gain. Teach us how to care about our planet and how to take care of it. Teach us how to take care of our temple, ourselves, our lives, our communities, our families. Teach us how to repent in all these areas and do it your way. God, forgive us for not looking out for the poor, the needy, the, the elderly, the, you know, the widow, the orphan, all this stuff. Teach us to do it your way, God. We're sorry. You know, forgive us for forgetting that we have a maker, that we have a creator. Forgive us and teach us to go back to you. Don't you wish the whole world was doing that right now? You know, and they may not. The whole world may not repent right now, but you can repent. We don't need the whole world to do it. Do what you wish the whole world was doing. Do what you wish everybody else was doing. Just do it. Decide that this time for you, this pandemic for you will be a time of repentance. Doesn't matter what everybody else is doing, but as far as it depends on me, as for me, 
I'm going to let this bring me to my knees. I'm going to change those things that God has been trying to help me to change because it's keeping me away from Him. I'm going to make this time a time of repentance and refreshment. This is how we rend our hearts. We let our hearts break over how we are breaking God's heart. That's the motivation. And that's the motivation that has to be there before you start doing, before you start doing the actions of repentance. We have to do both. We actually have to change something. We're going to talk about that. But first, we have to start from this motivation. God, I just want to, I want to make you look good. I want to, I want to make you feel good. I want to live for you. I want to mend this. I want to do whatever makes you happy. And that's the beginning. That's our motivation going into next time. And I hope this does help you until part two. Mm -hmm.